Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome, everybody, to Kelly Dry and Warren's Full Spectrum Podcast. Today's topic is another one in our series on FCC enforcement. This is our June 2018 edition of it, covering enforcement actions in May and early June of 2018. I think the theme of our, our session today is Back to the Basics. We're going to talk a little bit about um, what has been happening in the FCC and, and uh, what to expect coming up uh, after, after this month. But first, I want to start just very briefly with setting some background. If you guys have been listening to us regularly, you know that we have been talking about enforcement for several years. We've been talking about the differences between enforcement under Chairman Pai and under Chairman Wheeler prior to Chairman Pai. And in the past, a uh, couple significant things have, uh, are, are relevant here. In the past, first of all, uh, there have been a lot of criticism, criticisms of the FCC's aggressive enforcement or being too aggressive, or as I noted in a lot of my commentaries, it was really very much focused on principles-based enforcement, that is enforcement actions based upon broad principles rather than specific rules. And that drew a lot of criticism Right. I mean, you see criticism from the other side of the Wheeler administration from now Chairman Pai and uh, Commissioner O'Reilly about the idea of enforcement without clear and detailed regulations covering the conduct at issue. And I know that we've had, you know, the new chief, uh, Rosemary Harold, uh, speaking at a couple of events and her philosophy that the Enforcement Bureau is there to enforce the rules not to create new rules or create new interpretations of those rules. So it's like you said, a back-to-basics policy that says that in enforcement actions, we follow the rules as they are written. We're not going to try to push the boundaries in them. Right, right. And, and that, you know, the Enforcement Bureau under Rosemary Harold's direction has followed that admonition. No new rules. We're not going to be the ones creating rules. And that is what we have seen. And so... Uh, one of the things we're going to note here is that what it has led to is, um, with some interesting twists and some some digressions on this, a really mu- a return to kind of the nuts and bolts enforcement issues, the things that have been laid out in FCC rules. Um, the one area where that I think that is different has been in robocalling, and we will talk about that later. Um, but I think now what we want to do is we want to start going through some of these actions. There have been a lot of actions and in some, in, Brad, in, in the past, we talked a lot about slamming actions and cramming actions. And it's interesting from my perspective because this is a problem that I dealt with as a young attorney back in the early 1990s. And, you know, I remember this issue over and over again, the commission constantly coming up and addressing this. And you really would have thought, I would have thought that um, this had been something that had been eradicated like other 1990s problems like operator services, payphone compensation, or seeing too much of Bob Saget. But um, that hasn't actually been the case. Slamming and cramming problems have persisted. 
And and maybe, Brad, you can talk a little bit about why that is or sort of what's happening with respect to those problems. Sure. I mean, it, you're right. Uh, despite the fact, like, unlike all of those other issues that you described, uh, it's a perennial enforcement issue, slamming and cramming. And after years of a sort of broad enforcement actions based on statu- statutes like 258, which prohibits slamming, and then 201B, which prohibits unjust and unreasonable acts, which they've been used to deal with cramming. You know, now we're dealing with a situation where the FCC took action in June, and this is what we're going to talk about, to actually adopt specific rules, actual rules that go to sort of the heart of the conduct at their issue. Now, whether or not this is going to result in resolving these issues going forward, we'll see. But at least we know that the current enforcement regime wasn't working. Right. So the and, and in the past, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the, but you know, in the past, you're right. We had a rule on slamming. You had to follow the verification procedures the, that came out of Section 258. But everything else about the marketing, about misrepresentations, about um, improper conduct, et cetera, was all done under Section 201B, so with no rules. Right. Principle-based enforcement like you were discussing, and a, but a big body of enforcement cases over time. So while it was sort of understood within the building what was and was not permissible, you know, then they took action to actually do rules. And let's talk about those. So there are new rules adopted at the June FCC meeting regarding slamming, which again is the unauthorized carrier switches, and cramming, which is the putting of unauthorized charges on consumers' telephone bills. The big thing is that the FCC is prohibiting material misrepresentations or omissions in sales calls. Now, the FCC, like we just discussed, noted that their past enforcement actions that there were accusations that sales representatives misrepresented that they were calling on behalf of a consumer's current provider and then coach consumers on how to provide consent to switches. And that's the slamming. Now, importantly, these rules covering misrepresentations during sales calls will then invalidate any subsequent consent to switch providers. So what that means in practice is that you can't have a telemarketer basically misrepresent who they're calling on and what they're calling on for, then hand it over to someone who then confirms all the questions you need to ask to do a switch, and then you only rely on that second part. Basically, the misrepresentation then invalidates anything that comes after it. Right, right. And, and the commission had said before, I mean, they had used you know, 201B for that. It was an unjust and unreasonable practice to switch based upon a, a misrepresentation. Many commissioners dating back to actually to the mid to late 90s had some problems with the FCC handling marketing and addressing marketing. But now we have rules on it, right? So Yeah, and, let, and let's talk about some of those limitations, though, because the misrepresentations need to be material. So we're not covering minor inaccuracies. But importantly, and this was a big debate leading up to what the rules were going to look like, the misrepresentations don't need to be intentional to constitute a violation. So they only cover sales calls that are made to encourage consumers to switch phone service. So it's not a general, broad-based advertising rule. But in this limited situation about switching carriers, that's when these material misrepresentation uh, rules going to apply. Okay. Okay. And let's talk. I know we'll talk about remedies for violations in a minute on this, but let's talk about cramming as well. Now, cramming is another one where. Commission's never had a rule on it. It's always just been it's unjust and unreasonable to bill for something that somebody didn't authorize or request. Right. Now, previously, like you said, it's under 201, unjust and unreasonable practices. And Commission O'Reilly in particular has always questioned the ability of the commission to impose fine without specific and clear rules. We've also seen that when targets of these enforcement actions receive an LOI or notice of um, 
potential liability, they'll actually argue, well, there's no specific rule that tells me I can't do this. And that now is no longer the case. Now you have a specific rule which prohibits the uh, imposing of unauthorized charges into consumers' phone bills. Now, one thing I'd want to point out is that one of the changes that was made you know, before they adopted the rules but was included in the original draft was an idea that there would be potentially uh, other limitations like you would have to record all of your sales calls or you would uh, there'd be a default freeze on your carrier that would then have to be taken off by the consumer before it could be done. So there are a number of proposed reforms that were opposed by industry commenters and that weren't that were not adopted as part of these new rules. So there's no requirement that you have to to, to record all your sales calls, but the FCC still encouraged everyone to record their sales calls and mentioned that there'll be a presumption of a violation when the FCC receives what they were sort of describing as a viable complaint, which basically means a sort of supported by the consumer. I was called on this date, they said this to me, I made this change, I didn't mean to, or I never consented to the change. It, it's kind of interesting to me that the commission actually put that in a rule. It's a presumption of a violation. Um, it's clearly it's a shifting of the burden of proof. But I mean, I've always felt in defending these cases that the FCC believed the consumer unless and until you could prove that the consumer was wrong. And that was always, from a defense perspective, the carriers were always very reluctant to argue that their customer is wrong. I mean, even when they felt that they had sufficient justification, there was always, you know, there's always that disputed authorization side of it, for example, right? The child versus the parent authorizing a particular service or what have you. And, and carriers have always been reluctant to go into that area. Right. And now it's like, okay, well, how much do you need then to rebut that presumption? And certainly where before it's, okay, maybe a modicum of a response at all may be enough to at least push back. Now it seems like you're going to need a little bit more. So that's where you get that encourage of, okay, make sure that you have procedures in place where you're documenting or being able to produce something maybe later on if this has ever challenged the switch. Uh, but, but one thing, though, the FCC had the opportunity to just put all automatic blocks on any third-party charges. So they could have just said, okay, we're never going to have uh, certain kinds of charges actually put on a bill. And they declined to do that because, as you said at the beginning of all this, they're seeing trends that complaints about uh, these issues are actually declining, but they're never going away. So they still said, okay, look, the declining market for this type of service and the overall trends in the industry say that this is not going to be as big of a problem. So we don't need to take all of the actions that were suggested. Right. Well, plus, I mean, you know, our wireless phones are being used more and more to pay for things, and there is a convenience of using that. So um, there's a question sort of about whether you should be using your phone account for that versus other methods of charging. But the other thing I want, the last thing I want to cover with slamming and cramming is this interesting rule that the FCC has adopted now for repeat violators, right? Because we've seen that before. They'll, they'll cite somebody, uh, issue a, a notice of apparent liability, and then they'll hit them again with another one or two or three before they end up issuing forfeiture orders. So what did the commission do to kind of address that repeat violator situation? So it is. It's an interesting rule. I, I'm basically calling it a timeout for violators. And so there's various different ways that you can prove that a a consumer is consulted to a carrier switch. And we've talked about this TPV process where you record them answering these questions and then you can submit that. Well, a lot of these cases that have resulted in enforcement actions have resulted in allegedly doctored recordings or they have no recordings to submit or various ways of sort of changing those that have really drawn a lot of criticism from specifically Chairman Pai. So the way that 
it works now is that if you're found to have abused the TPP process, so submitted falsified TPP recordings, you will not be allowed to use that process to confirm consumer switches for five years. So that means you have to use some other alternative process, and they're very burdensome. They're things like letters of agency, which I can't imagine someone with a broad customer base would ever end up using, electronic authorizations, et cetera. But either way, it, what it does is at the outset, once you've been found to have violated this rule, it's basically already putting procedural hurdles in your place to potentially violate again instead of just submitting another file. Yeah, so th this is kind of using that those non-monetary penalties again. And, you know, this kind of short of the extreme penalty of revoking a carrier's authorization or their 214, et cetera, um, this is kind of a temporary step in there. Yeah, but imposes a real cost that goes beyond the fine that they're already going to have to pay. Okay. All right. So let's then shift to the other kind of nuts and bolts thing. This is, you know, we were just talking about enforcement against carriers, but there's been another thing that the commission has been really, really active on, which has been enforcing against entities who are not ordinarily before the FCC or not otherwise regulated. And it comes up in a couple of different contexts, but most often with equipment authorizations. So why don't we run through some of those things, Brad? Sure. So equipment marketing is really, it is one of those bread and butter enforcement categories that kind of comes in and out of fashion. It's very much you know, a, a key area of focus now. So I'll start with the Hobby King item, which was actually just released earlier this month. $2.8 million proposed forfeiture dealing with these equipment marketing rules, which are complex. They involve technical constraints, testing obligations, and labeling requirements. Often, the manufacturer has to deal with specific guidance issued by the FCC's Office of Engineering and Technology. Now, here specifically, Hobby King, which is an on online retailer, they, the FCC alleged that they had marketed 65 uncertified drone video relay devices. So these are things that transmit video from aerial drones for recording down to the device, you know, that the operator is using. Right. And again, sort of not the kind of thing that people would ordinarily think is covered by the FCC, but that transmission or um, the use of the spectrum is what the FCC has jurisdiction over. Yeah. And here, the company had stated that the device is operated within the amateur bands, but the FCC's investigations show that they also could operate and did operate in other bands, and this is very important, including bands restricted to federal government operations, specifically the FAA and at unauthorized power levels. So now devices that unlawfully operate on restricted frequencies, they can't be certified to begin with. So it's not a matter that they weren't certified in this case. They couldn't have been tested to be FCC approved in any event. Right. So it's a de design flaw, really, in the devices here that they could transmit in these frequencies. Right. And so the proposed fine, it follows, and this is a long investigation that started you know, a couple of years back. But the FC, you know, they originally issued a citation for this because, as we've discussed before on this podcast, this is not a uh, Hobby King doesn't have an FCC license. They're not necessarily doing something that re requires automatically an authorization. So you usually have to send a citation in those instances before you can impose a fine. So they did issue that citation. Then they received further complaints that they were continuing to market uncertified devices. They sent another LOI, and then as we've talked about in forfeiture actions before. The issue here is the forfeiture, uh, in response to that LOI, the company didn't fully respond according to the FCC. So then you result in even more, you know, fines, investigations, potential violations. So the forfeiture here is based on both the equipment marketing violations and the failure to respond to the LOI. Now, the FCC upwardly adjusted the forfeiture because of the repeated intentional nature of the violations. And here's an important part. 
potential threat to the public safety of operating within those federally restricted spectrum that we were talking about. And they actually applied the statutory maximum fine to those violations, to those models that were operating in those restricted frequencies. Right. And this just, I mean, this just underscores again the need to have experienced counsel working with you when you get an LOI. You know, the, the failure to respond parts of that, the upward adjustment criteria here are things that are required for the FCC, they're required by the statute rather for the FCC to consider. And, you know, it didn't look like a great deal of effort was put into that on the response side. No. And maybe because of that, the FCC simultaneously released an enforcement advisory, basically warning the online retailer market not to sell uncertified drone, you know, audiovisual transmitters, and noting for consumers that operation of these devices within the amateur bands itself requires an amateur license. Now, they did say for anyone who's ever bought something through Hobby King that may be operating in here, you need to cease operations of those immediately. Chance of the FCC taking action against individual hobbyists is, is probably pretty rare. But the fact they felt the need to do both that warning and the advisory shows that this may be the beginning of some more, or at least this is a trend that's going to continue. Yeah, or they expecting a lot more compliance. Okay. All right. So we talked about drones and equipment, right? But now we're going to shift to personal hygiene, humidifiers. What's sure. what's the deal with this next one? Well, and this is important. So this is the pure enrichment case that came out in late May, and here we have a five hundred ninety thousand proposed thousand uh, dollar proposed forfeiture. Here, the FC alleged that the company sold personal hygiene wellness devices, things like ultrasonic humidifiers. And here's an important difference between the case we were just talking about. As you were saying, well, these are people that don't necessarily realize that maybe they're under FCC regulations. Here, you're even one step more removed because at least with Hobby King, you have transmitters. You have something that is actually purposefully, it's part of its design is to transmit um, something. Pure enrichment, these are not things that it's part of their product to transmit communications, but they're what's known as unintentional radiators of emissions. So things like ultrasonic humidifiers, which oscillate, they have these little tiny components that you know, move very, very fast. They actually emit um, frequency and RF that actually matters to the FCC. So there are the, you know, it's a, it's a less stringent um, regulatory regime, but it's still something that they need to be aware of. And this is a good example. I mean, Pure Enrichment said they didn't know about the violations until they received the letter of inquiry. Now, one issue is that the FCC uh, alleges that the company then continued to market and sell these devices even after they received the LOI. And one of the things when they're putting the forfeiture together is that the FCC precedent regarding equipment marketing penalties is a little bit different from other violations in that the FCC assesses the uh, proposed penalties on a per-model basis instead of taking each individual sale one by one and counting as a new violation. So here, that would have resulted in, at least the FCC's mind, a pretty low base forfeiture if you just went by the number of models sold. Right, right. So it's the same fine under the guidelines if I have one model that sells 10 devices and one that sells 10 million devices. Yeah, that's right. So what did the FCC do in response to this? They upwardly adjusted the forfeiture by over 600%. And where did they find the basis for the 600%? Well, basically it was the substantial economic gain as well as the repeated intentional nature of the violations. Again, they received the LOI and then continued to sell the device. I think that was a big part of why the FCC felt the need to increase it. Now, in a concurring statement, O'Reilly criticized basing upward adjustments on economic gain just by itself, and he pushed for an overall update of the base forfeitures for equipment marketing violations. 
So following recent trends, the FC also threatened a show cause order if the company did not come into compliance. So we'll see. This may not be the last chapter of that. Right. Yeah. That that update of the forfeiture guidelines is something I think is definitely due. And uh, I would love if they started. It would give us a lot of fodder for future podcasts, definitely. Yeah. It's not automatically uh, indexed for inflation, the base forfeitures, unlike the statutory maxima, which actually now are indexed. Right. Right. Well, plus there are very few of them for certain things where that have have grown and grown, right? I mean, there's three common carrier-based forfeitures that are specified. So um, there's a lot more that could be done there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's then shift to our last item, uh, the robocall fines. Um, now, we talk about this, you know, this has come up a lot, and Chairman Pai has cited to this as an important part of what he is doing to address um, the rise in unwanted and illegal robocalls. Um, and we talked about this a little bit at our last podcast because we recorded it right before the June meeting. Uh, there was a, another mystery enforcement item on the June meeting, which we speculated might be a forfeiture order. It turns out it was. Um, it was the robocall item. Um, now, this was a um, sort of kind of the, the king of robocalling, or at least the poster child for this year, um, Adrian Abramovich and companies that he controlled. They were charged with um, providing spoofed robocalls, and and as we noted before, right there was there was a citation for the TCPA violations and a proposed fine for the spoofing violations because of the different steps in enforcement on that. Um, so what they had done on this one is um, at the June meeting they um, finalized the fine. So they issued a, a forfeiture order for $120 million, which was the proposed amount as well. That's the largest forfeiture that was ever imposed by the FCC. There have been some settlements that are a little bit larger, but this clearly is the largest, um, both just purely in terms of the fine, but also one imposed by the FCC. Now, um, Brad, we got a little bit of a preview of this uh, through some congressional testimony as well about Abramovich's um, uh, his defense on this. We both heard testimony, but he also actually released the NAL response, which was uh, unusual. So tell us a little bit about some of the arguments that he made there. Right. I mean, we discussed the background of the case in our last podcast, but a few key points from the forfeiture order deserve highlighting. So Mr. Abramovich did not de deny the violations. That's important to note from the outset. Instead, he argued that he lacked the requisite intent to defraud or cause harm. That's a statutory requirement you need to have in order to find the violation. And noted that only a fraction of the consumers targeted actually answered any of these millions of robocalls. He also argued that the third-party companies that hired him to run the robocalling campaign, as well as the carriers that actually transmitted the robocalls, should also share in liability for the violations. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I read through that, and you and I had talked about this. I mean, we weren't all that concerned about those types of arguments here, right? So so what did the FCC do? Did any of those succeed? No. If there's the easiest way to say the FCC disagreed <laughs> strongly. <laughs> uh, they found that the use of neighborhood spoofing and references to the well-known travel companies demonstrated an intent to defraud customers. Now, we've talked about before on this podcast, and I know you've mentioned before, there are legitimate uses for spoofing. And the, and the FCC seems to recognize that, too. But this fine indicates that the FCC seems to view the practice of spoofing, specifically neighbor spoofing, with suspicion. So the FCC also rejected the argument that the liability should be based on the number of consumers who actually answered instead of the number of uh, robocalls issued, explaining that the actual act, the Truth and Caller ID Act, 
only requires that a spoof call be made with fraudulent intent, not that it's answered. And then the FCC emphasized that Mr. Abramovich and his companies, not the third-party travel companies or the carriers, they're the ones who actually place the spoof robocalls. That's where the act establishes liability. Yeah, because, I mean, common carriers generally don't have liability for the transmissions that are made over their their wires. That's one of the main elements of being a common carrier. So it's the common absent, part. Absent yeah. <laughs> something else, right? Yeah. That that didn't surprise me. But the interesting part though is that he made one argument that I thought, you know, at least if assuming he supported it properly, um, was a valid argument, which is he said, I don't have $120 million. I can't afford to pay this. And you know, that is a statutory factor the FCC must consider. So how did the commission address that part? Why didn't they reduce this $120 million fine? Yeah, and again, some background. I mean, like you said, the FCC, by law, is required to consider ability to pay when assessing forfeitures. And in the past, usually will reduce a fine to 2 to 8% of a company's gross revenues. That's sort of the high watermark. And Commissioner Riley, in particular, has previously criticized fines under the last administration that were in excess of the target's claimed inability to pay. Yeah, he, he claimed that, hey, this is just sort of showboating, we're grandstanding, we're putting out big numbers to have a big press release. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. here, as they did in the past under the prior administration, but you see it being applied here, is precedent uh, saying that you know the inability to pay is just one factor in the FCC's forfeiture analysis. And that's true. The FCC, both the statute and also the regulations list a whole bunch of other factors that need to be considered, including egregiousness, the intentional nature, whether the violation's repeated, did the violator uh, get a, a substantial economic gain, and then they're offsetting ones too. Was there a voluntary disclosure, good faith effort to comply with the law? Is this a quote-unquote minor violation? So they say, okay, ability to pay is just one of those. And here, the repeated intentional and egregious nature of the violations warranted a fine that is beyond the claimed ability of Mr. Bromwich and his companies to pay. Now, it leaves open, obviously, pretty clearly, the question of how the FCC actually expects the fine to be paid. And what we see is that maybe it's about sending a message. Yeah, I, I think it probably is. I mean, the commission, to be honest, right, they're, they're really leaving themselves open with respect to this to the same kinds of criticisms that the Wheelers FCC Enforcement Bureau faced on setting some fines and some precedents that are are intended to send a message um, or make a point. And yes, they have a very strong precedent now as a result of this. They can point to that for other robocall operations and maybe ones that have deeper pockets than Mr. Abramovich presumably has. Um, but the interesting thing here is I, I really question whether or not there's any chance that the FCC will be able to collect this. I'm assuming he doesn't have the money. I, I don't know for sure. He didn't release that part of it, but we'll see. But the enforcement collection step is different. It's now kind of out of the FCC's hands because the way you're supposed to collect a forfeiture like this is that the FCC now has to get the U.S. Department of Justice to bring a lawsuit against Abramovich to collect. And he'll get one more shot at making his, his uh, defenses in that, presuming that they can find a place to sue him, um, which is the second thing. So first of all, you've got to convince DOJ that it's worth going after at this. Um, but secondly, it's not clear to me that DOJ has jurisdiction over Abramovich. He said that he is a foreign citizen. I think he resides outside of the United States. So it's not clear to me how or where they're going to be able to bring a 
collection action here. Yeah, and this is, again, one of those situations where the FCC, you have, it's always good to reiterate this, this quirk here on the back end that you'll see press releases, you'll see actions being issued by the FCC. None of those things are the last step for actually resulting in a fine being paid. There is a whole separate litigation, federal court, where you not only would need to convince the DOJ to expend the time and resources necessary to bring that type of case, but as you just said, also issues about whether or not the case can be made at all. Right, right. And and here and then, you know, you have a new decision maker because the Department of Justice that decides ultimately whether to bring the case and then during the case, how to prosecute it, whether, whether to settle and on what levels to settle it. So. There are a lot of uh, forfeiture orders out there for large numbers that um, when you peel behind the onion, you don't see any actual collections on. And, you know, this probably, I think, falls in the same category here and opens up the FCC to the same criticism that many of its current members made over past enforcement practices. So... We will see. Um, all right. So that those are the major things that were happening in May, June of 2018. Um, we will continue to monitor this. We will do another podcast in a month or so. So we hope that you'll continue to follow us. And we thank you for joining us. Thank the views much. and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.